Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Well, sometimes it seems that even though Jesus is our Prince of Peace, Peace is elusive, sometimes especially this time of year around Christmas. All of the gift purchasing that needs to take place and the extra events going on and oh, for just a few moments of peace. But we have to acknowledge that peace is more than just the absence of busyness. It's, it's more than just the absence of trouble, isn't it? Without any troubles at all, in fact, a person may still not experience peace, haunted by past sins, mistakes, or a guilty conscience. We would also recognize that in the midst of trouble, a person can experience peace, peace that passes understanding, as Philippians 4 reminds us. So peace is more than just the presence or absence of trouble. Peace in our souls, in fact, comes only from being right with God, to know that everything between me and the Lord is right. There's only one way a person can know that kind of peace, and it's by having a right relationship with Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21 is about that very peace. So if your Bible isn't open there already, you can go ahead and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 14 through 21, which was read for us already, but as we work down through it, we want to understand exactly what it means to have peace with God through Jesus, our Prince of Peace. There's a reason that the night that Jesus was born, the angels appeared to the shepherds and they sang, glory to God in the highest, but do you remember what they they said next? And on earth, peace, goodwill toward mankind peace on earth. Jesus in his birth was the very embodiment of God's peace for mankind. What he would grow up to do, how he would die in our place, how he would be raised from the grave and ascend on high, purchasing peace with God. This passage is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the Corinthian church. We encountered them not that long ago when we went through the book of Acts. Remember the the church in Corinth? Paul spent a great deal of time there, and though he was there for a while, they experienced quite a few troubles. And so after leaving Corinth, Paul wrote a number of letters back to them. We think as many as three letters that Paul wrote to Corinth. We have two of them in Scripture. First Corinthians, and the one we're in today, second Corinthians. Corinthians. And in this section of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is reminding them what it is that motivates Paul to keep traveling and keep preaching the gospel. Where does this kind of energy and motivation come from? And the Apostle Paul explains it in verses 12 through 21, what it is that compels him in ministry to preach this message of peace with God. And the whole section, I think, really hinges on verse 18, where the Apostle Paul says this, all things are of God, 
All of this work of reconciliation, of Jesus' death and resurrection and paying for our sins and purchasing our peace with God, all of that is of God. God did it. Paul goes on to explain in verse 18, who God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us a ministry of reconciliation. God did two things in this one act of the Lord Jesus Christ. He provided reconciliation, which as we work through our sermon, we'll define that it means to be made right with God, to be at peace with God. But at the same time, he made those who are reconciled to be his messengers, ambassadors, to take that message of peace to the world. So Paul's explaining why it is that he takes the message of peace, and it's because God has given him peace. And so those of us here today who have received peace with God through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, we've also been made messengers, made ambassadors, and can learn from Paul here with this key takeaway. Our role is to invite everyone to find peace with God through Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. So if you're here today and you have found peace with God in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to be encouraged as we work through the theology of what it means to actually have peace with God. Just incredible. I, I, I hope it just floors you with God's rich kindness today. But if you're here today and you don't know about peace with God, then my task is to invite you to find peace with Him today. And then those here that know that peace with God would go from here as ambassadors of the Prince of Peace calling your friends and family and co-workers to find peace in their souls with God, their creator. So let's work through this rich text and understand why it's so important that we invite people to find peace with God. The first point is pretty obvious in the text. The first reason it's important for us to invite people to find peace with God is that Jesus' love compels us to do this. Jesus' love compels us to invite people to find peace with God. And this is exactly what Paul says in verse 14. Did you notice it there? Paul says, for the love of Christ compels us. It's Jesus' love that drives Paul to share the good news of the gospel over and over and over again because the massive size of Christ's love compels us to live that way. Let's consider what Paul means when he says Christ's love compels us. This is talking about Jesus' love for us, and we understand that as Paul goes on to explain exactly what this love did. The Apostle Paul here is going to use kind of a a logical statement so we can understand where he's coming from. What do you mean this love compels us? Well, Paul says, well, here's the conclusion that I've made. Verse 15, or excuse me, verse 14, because we judge thus. Here's the logical argument. First of all, if one died for all, then all died. This is uh, just one statement followed by Uh, another statement, a, a piece of logic. If one died for all, then all died. So let's seek to understand what the Apostle Paul means by this. If it was necessary for one man to die for the whole world, then it logically follows that the whole world was under the sentence of death, right? Now, the whole world being under the sentence of death is not something that everyone will admit, 
but we can all see the proof that Jesus died. And so Paul's looking back to the death of Christ. He's saying, okay, well, here's a man named Jesus who died, and he died for the whole world. So whether or not you admit that the whole world is under sin, let's look to the fact that Jesus died and what that implies. If it was necessary for him to die for the whole world, what's that imply about the whole world? It's under the sentence of death. That's right. We were as good as dead before Jesus. If one died for all, then all died. That leads to the next step in Paul's logic, and he explains that in verse 15. He died for all, the text says, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. There's another few bits of helpful information here. Paul reminds us he died for all, which is just a beautiful truth in and of itself, that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Maybe you've never heard that message before. But that means that even if you'd never heard of Jesus, you had no idea about him, he knew you. And that day when he went to the cross, he died for your sins. Think of that. He died for the sins of the whole world. And he died for all with a purpose that those who live, now here's an interesting part, those who live, now we've narrowed the focus from the whole world, the all, That began verse 15, now we've narrowed it to those who live. Not everyone will find life in Jesus Christ, the one who died for them. But those who do find life in Jesus are to respond in a logical way. And this is the end of Paul's logic, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. What was our pattern of living that put us under the condemnation of death? What was it that we did that caused the whole world to deserve to die so that one man needed to die for the world? It was that we lived for ourselves. And so Paul says, if one died for all so that those, so some can find life, then it makes sense that they would no longer live the old way. Imagine if I got a phone call, ring, 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 answer my phone, On the other end, I hear a voice, this is Judge Smith. Oh, hello, Your Honor. What can I do for you? Am I speaking to Lance Augsburger? Uh, Yes, yes, that's me. Well, I'm calling to inform you that a man has volunteered to receive the death sentence in your place. We put him to death this morning. So now you're free to live a new life. Oh, I didn't even know I was under the death sentence. But thank you. This is great news, the judge continues. Well, because of this, we want you to know that you're now free. You're free to live your life. Your debt has been paid, and you can live as you please. But I would encourage you to live differently now that you have a second chance. Well, judge, I don't understand. What was it that caused this death sentence in the first place? Ah, The judge replies, well, you were living for yourself. You had rebelled against a holy God and were no longer living under his authority. And that rebellion against God, that living for yourself, led to your death sentence. So I encourage you, live for him. Well, thank you very much, judge. I'm glad to hear this. But the thing is, I really like living for myself. I think I'm going to continue living that way. Is that all right? How would the judge respond to a question like that? Probably something like, you fool, 
Why would you place yourself again under the death sentence that you just escaped? This is Paul's logic here in verses 14 and 15. (laughs) Whether we knew we were under the sentence of death or not, one gave his life for the world, paying for my selfishness. And so the conclusion is clear. Well, then why would those who live continue living for themselves? We should live for the one who died for us and rose again. Jesus' death in our place changes everything. And those who have been saved by his death and resurrection have been granted new life. And that compels us to live for him. And in Paul's case, that meant specifically devoting his life to sharing the good news. Why was it that Paul went everywhere to preach the gospel? Because Jesus' love died for the whole world. That means everybody needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus' love compels us. I use the illustration of a phone call. Do you remember the old days when we couldn't screen our phone calls? I I do. Right? You know, the, the most fancy phones at home might have had a little screen that had caller ID on them, you know, but most didn't have that. And so typically the phone rang right during dinner. You remember that? And you'd have to get up from the table and uh, might, you know, answer the phone. This is the Augsburger residence, you know. Well, hi, we wanted to tell you about an opportunity. Okay, you know. <laughs> You couldn't screen those spam calls. Now it's pretty handy. Our phones kind of tell us a potential spam. God just let that one ring, right? We started screening our calls. Maybe your screening has even uh, trickled over into non-spam calls. Oh, it's so-and-so. Well, I'll let that one go to voicemail, right? But then there's that person who calls you, the one you love, and you see their name there as it rings. Ah, this one... I'll answer, hello, right? Why? What, what compels us to respond differently when it's a spam call as opposed to a call from someone we love? Well, I gave it away. Love. Love makes the difference. Relationship, a desire to talk to this person because we know them, because we love them. So too, in this text, Jesus' love compels us to live a different way, to respond differently than we did before. And so the first question I need to ask if you're here today is, do you know Jesus' love for you? Have you trusted him as your savior? This is the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. That when we were sinners, rebels against God and dead in our sins, God chose to love us. He chose to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place and rise from the grave offering forgiveness of sins and peace with God to all who trust in Jesus as Savior. Do you know the love of God in your life? Have you trusted in Jesus as Savior? Are you growing in your knowledge of Jesus' love for you and your love for Him? Many Christians simply believe in Jesus but never grow to love Him. Do you really know His love for you? Maybe one of the ways to apply this text to your life this week is as you open your Bible to maybe have a little time with God, to to begin opening it with a different goal, not just to read the text or to check off the devotions from your weekly task list or whatever, but to open the scriptures with a desire to grow in your love for Christ, 
to, to notice what God is like in the text, to spend a few moments delighting and just worshiping God for who he is and what he's done for you on a daily basis so that little by little, your affection for Christ grows in your heart as you understand the size of his love for you. But then once you understand his love, I wonder if you are compelled by his love. Has the Christian life become a drudgery for you, a bit exhausting? Many Christians find themselves worn out because they're no longer compelled by Jesus' love. They live the Christian life in terms of what they have to do and what they're supposed to do, maybe saved by grace but living under law. Instead, let Jesus' love energize you. When his love is your strength, it's not drudgery to serve people. It's a joy. When his love is your strength, it's not a drudgery to obey him. It's a joyful response to the way he has loved you. Finally, are you living for the one who died for you? So many Christians are not. If you find yourself in that place, remember again what it is that Jesus did for you. Remember his love for you. It all begins there. Then, when we're rooted and grounded in his love for us, we then grow up into the image of Christ. As the Apostle Paul goes on, this love of Jesus isn't the only thing that compels him to live this way. In verses 16 and 17, he's going to explain to us how his perspective has changed. He sees people in a whole different light. We're going to see this, number two, our new life in Christ instructs us. Our new life in Christ instructs us. Paul says in verse 16, therefore, from now on, well, that means it's rooted in what he just said. From now on, therefore, what's he talking about? Verse 15, there's this one who died for him and rose again. So after he came to know about the death and resurrection of Jesus, it informs him to live a different way. He says in verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. The word regard literally is to know. We don't know anyone according to the flesh. See, Paul in his pre-Jesus life was completely concerned with the outward. You remember what Paul was before he came to Christ? He was a Pharisee. He was one who had given his life to outward righteousness and was so self-righteous in that outward righteousness that he persecuted those who didn't live like he lived. This was Paul's former self, only concerned with the outward appearance, but now because of Christ, something has changed. He goes on and says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Here's where this passage connects to Christmas. When did it happen that that humanity knew Christ according to the flesh? Well, it all started on Christmas Day when the eternal Son of God was born as a human baby. Imagine, God became flesh. And from that day forward, people knew him. Do you remember, for instance, the story when Jesus went to his hometown and was preaching and teaching there, and they marveled at his teaching. Do you remember what they said to one another? Isn't this just Joseph's son? Son of the carpenter? Where did he get all this wisdom from? Where were they looking? They were looking on the outward. All they saw was a man. 
They didn't realize that Jesus was so much more. And through his ministry, Jesus revealed the glory of the Father in him as he healed people and taught with wisdom from above. And many had their eyes open to see beyond his outward appearance to understand who he really was. And it was finally culminated in his death and resurrection when his inward appearance was made known to everyone that Jesus truly was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And it was that change in thinking that caused Paul to now see everyone differently. No longer looking on the outside, but looking on the inside. Seeing people not as just rich or poor or Jews or Gentiles, but now rather seeing, is their soul at peace with God? Do they know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior? This became the Apostle Paul's ministry, was to see beyond the outward appearance and to look to the hearts, to see people as souls in need of a Savior. And so he explains that in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You see, when a person trusts in Christ, everything inward changes. It might look the same on the outside, but in here it's all different. Paul goes on to say in verse 17, old things have passed away, behold, all things become new. That former way of life when we live for ourselves is dead, has no power over me anymore. Now we know our sin nature is still present in us, we still experience temptation to sin, but when a person trusts in Christ, we become a new creation. That Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, and now I'm no longer enslaved to my sinful ways, I now have God's power to do what is right, to say yes to God, and to live in a way that's pleasing to Him. Old things have passed away, everything is new. So this inward change is now what Paul is looking for in people. And really, with that in mind, there's just two kinds of people in the world. Those who have God's Spirit dwelling in them and those who don't. Those who are a new creation in Christ and those who aren't. And so with those who are, we experience deep fellowship and community and love with those who've been changed by salvation in Christ For those who don't know Christ as Savior, we're burdened by this text to share the gospel, to let them know how they can have peace with God. Carrie and I enjoy uh, going to the mall, getting some exercise, walking a little bit, and our favorite time to go to the mall is when it's busy. Yesterday was one of those days. I don't know if you were at the mall, I don't remember seeing you there, but... We were at the mall for a little while. It just packed with people. It was wonderful. So fun. And so we're walking around, people watching and you know, running into people. And saying, one of the things that I often think about when I walk in the mall is, you know, I wonder if, I wonder if they would ever come to our church. You know, as I see different people, I wonder about them. I wonder if they would ever come to our church. And I often frame that in terms of, I wonder, you know, if they'd feel like they fit in in our church. I, I frame it in terms of the outward. So at one point, uh, we were walking in the mall, and Carrie and I happened to both be uh, wearing uh, Bears gear, right? So I had a Chicago Bears emblem right here on my shirt, and Carrie's sweatshirt said Bears across the front, and we passed one couple, and he turned and said, Go Packers! (laughs) That guy, he would not fit in at this church, let me tell you. (laughs) 
But as I continued to walk, and, and this text was on my mind as I prepared for today, right? It began to occur to me, how silly is it to just look at outward appearance, to, to make assessments based, oh yeah, they, they'd probably do great at our church, they'd probably fit with, no, it's not about outward at all. It's about souls in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he died for the sins of the world, every single soul fits here at our church. Because this is a place where we believe in a Savior who died for everyone. And everyone needs to know that Savior and find peace with God in him. Every soul. Every soul. You see, God's work of creating us new inwardly changes the way we see people. It's not about status or, or wealth or looks. Or, oh, they look like me. They'd fit in great here. No. It's about souls who will last for eternity in one of two places. Are we experiencing a burden for souls? Because I know what Jesus has done for my soul. And so am I seeing the souls around me, seeing life the way my new life in Christ instructs me to see it, to develop a burden for eternal souls and those who need Jesus? So often we develop self-righteousness and we're repulsed by others around us that we think don't live up to my standards. Oh, that... Christ would give us humility and gentleness to be drawn to the souls of those who need to find salvation in Jesus Christ. Our new life in Christ instructs us. We come to the final section, verses 18 through 21. And this is a rich section of verses about the details of God's reconciliation ministry in Christ. And as we work down through it, you're going to notice something that we often skip over when it comes to reconciliation. Briefly, as I've said already, reconciliation means that we are made right with God. We're at peace with God. But there's something else that God did in reconciliation. It's not just making us right with God. There's a concurrent action of God. Not only does He reconcile people to Himself, but at the same time, He makes those who are reconciled ministers of that reconciliation. Each of these verses, as they talk about peace with God, reconciliation with God, each of them will also talk about the task of ministering reconciliation, being an ambassador for Christ. And I want you to notice that because we often highlight the reconciliation side of things, which is great, but we forget about the job that comes with it, to be a minister of that reconciliation. So let's, let's work down through these verses. First of all, verse 18. Oh, point number three, I forgot to put it up there. God's reconciliation employs us. It employs us. His peacemaking work also gives us a job to do. So let's see this in the text here. Verse 18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. So reconciliation is for God, not for us. Okay, We're reconciled to God. He's the holy one. He's the just one. He's the righteous one. And he goes on to say, not only has he reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So there's God's reconciling work and our job, both things, same time. Verse 19, that is, here Paul goes on to explain more, God was in Christ 
reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. This explains part of the work of reconciliation. God was doing something specific in Christ. He was providing for reconciliation specifically, not imputing their trespasses to them. This means that because Jesus died on the cross, a person's sins can be forgiven because they were paid for at the cross. Let's use a Christmas illustration to understand this, okay? Uh, Maybe this Christmas season, somebody's asked you to make a list of some things that you want, right? They want help getting a gift for you, and so you make your list. And so let's start with one list over here. You've got your Christmas list, and you say maybe you have four or five items on it, right? Well, a new pair of gloves and some wool socks, and uh, I don't know what's on your list, but anyway, so you've got your list over here. Then on this side of the chart, we have the list of things you actually receive. Now, that hasn't happened yet. You have to wait till after Christmas to compare the list. But you, you, know, you open your gifts, and you, you start to track them, and you, you write down, well, I, I didn't get a pair of wool socks. They're just cotton socks. So, okay, well, that's close, right? I really wanted that pair of gloves. I got earmuffs instead, right? And then I got a skateboard, which I wasn't really hoping for, but anyway, now I have it, okay? So you've got your list over here. Now, rarely do the two lists, right, what I wanted and what I got, they don't reconcile. They don't match up. They're not the same. This list is not like this list, okay? Now, that's just silly with Christmas gifts and so forth, but in the end, it help, it's a helpful illustration of what it means to be reconciled with God. Because on this side, we have God's list of what's required to get into heaven. Many people think that the requirements to get into heaven is to live a, a good life, live a righteous life. Many Pharisees in, in the New Testament lived this way. They tried to, tried to achieve righteousness in order to match God's list, but the scriptures are actually clear that it's, it's not a life full of good works that's on God's list. It's actually perfect righteousness. So God's list is his perfect righteousness. How do we know that? Well, for instance, Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of human righteousness. No, 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 no. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Woo, that's a list. Let's see how we're doing over here on our list. Here, God, here's what I got you. All right, I, I, I tried to do this, and I lived this way, and I tried to do these things. Will my good works ever reconcile with God's list? Never. Never. So there's no reconciliation there unless God does something. The first part of what he did is mentioned there in verse 19. When he reconciled the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to him. This is when God in Christ is able to, you know, swipe right and move all the things off of our list and onto Jesus who paid for them at the cross. They don't disappear. They're not just deleted. They're not just erased. A just God demands that they're paid for. And so all those horrible things on my list are swiped off the list onto Jesus. Well, now I have a blank list. That's not quite good enough, is it? Because what is it that I have to reconcile with? I have to reconcile with the perfect righteousness of God, infinite righteousness. Well, a blank list, that's maybe a step in the right direction. Notice what else God does in reconciliation. 
He says, as we continue in verse 19, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. There's our job again, the, the word of reconciliation. Now then, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. There's our job again. And now we return to reconciliation, verse 21. For he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Did you catch that? There is some incredible truth in that verse. God made Jesus who knew no sin. He was sinless. In fact, not only did Jesus have the blank list, as the Son of God, Jesus had full, perfect, God, divine righteousness. Because of his sinlessness, God could swipe our sinful list onto Jesus Christ who paid for it at the cross. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. And the verse is strong. It actually means he became sin for us. That's heavy. doesn't mean Jesus was a sinner. He never sinned. But he bore the weight of the sins of the whole world. He took our place and paid for it on the cross. But it doesn't end there. That's not the end of reconciliation, the second half of the verse, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Just like it says that Jesus became sin for us, the second half says we might become, be made righteousness in him. What kind of righteousness? Did you notice? The righteousness of God. There are some theological traditions that believe we receive the human merit of Jesus. We receive his good works as a man. That's not enough, is it? We receive the righteousness of God. So not only has God swiped all of our sinfulness off of our list, he's put in its place the perfect divine righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, let's take a look at our lists. What's happened? They're exactly the same. We are at peace with God because God's requirements for his heaven and our list now match perfectly. Can't be added to, can't be subtracted from because it's the divine righteousness of Jesus Christ. Think of that. This is what God has done in reconciling us to himself through Jesus, our Prince of Peace. But it's not just that reconciliation. He's given us who have been reconciled a job. It came up in each verse. Did you notice it? Verse 19, he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, now then, we are ambassadors. We're ambassadors. I think that fits well with Jesus' title of Prince of Peace, doesn't it? He's the the ruler who reigns with peace and has given us peace with God, and now we are his representatives living on this war, hate, evil-ridden world, able to tell people you can have peace with God, the only peace that really matters. And one day, the Prince of Peace will come again and fulfill all his promises and indeed set up peace on the earth forevermore but you can have peace with God in Jesus Christ. These are rich, rich verses that encourage us. 
as we think about what God has done in Christ. Not only does God reconcile us to himself, giving us peace with God, he also gives us a job. God's reconciliation employs us. When we come across something great, something that works really well, we tend to be excited about it. We encounter that all the time this time of year, right? Maybe you bought yourself something during the year and you've really enjoyed it, and so you decide, you know what, I think I'm going to get everyone this thing for a gift, whether they want it or not. They're going to love it, right? When we find something we really like, we, we want to tell people about it. As I was preparing for this sermon, I was reading through one of my commentaries that I hadn't interacted with a long time. I'm researching in 2 Corinthians, and I, I just, it, it was so helpful. So I just stopped and walked into Pastor Ryan's office and said, do you have this commentary? This is fantastic. And Seth was in the office as well. Seth, do you have this? This is a great commentary, right? When we find something valuable, good, productive, helpful, we tell people. This is the job we've received from God as those who have found peace with Him in Christ. We're His ambassadors. Friend, you can have peace with God. Let me tell you how I found it. Let me tell you what the Prince of Peace did for me. Oh, that this Christmas season, the Lord would give us opportunities to be His ambassadors, that people would see His peace in us, that people would want to know about His peace in us, and that we'd have opportunities to share the word of reconciliation with God in Jesus Christ. If you aren't sure where to turn this Christmas season in sharing the gospel, 2 Corinthians 5 might be a good place to start. To tell people how they can have peace with God by faith in Jesus Christ. So as we close, I wonder, first of all, are you reconciled to God? Part of our job as, as Paul describes in verse 20, is as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. He, he paid for the sins of the world. Please be reconciled to God. The gift is purchased. It merely needs to be applied to your account. Your sins washed away by His forgiveness based on the payment of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God filled in its place. Do you have peace with God? Would you place your faith in Jesus Christ today and have your sins forgiven and be fully reconciled with God? If you have found that peace today, are you as a Christian living at peace with God? So often we, we bear condemnation this defeatist mentality. We, though we're saved by His righteousness, we live in some form of self-righteousness. We make mistakes and we beat ourselves up for it because we're not living up to the standards we've set for ourselves. When in reality, the Christian life is the reverse. We have Jesus' righteousness, and so I just, I just want to live for Him. And when I make a mistake, I, I rejoice in His forgiveness and press on, compelled by His love. That with his righteousness, I can admit my faults, my sins. I can confess the ways that I've been wrong and seek forgiveness. I don't have to pretend or hide. I don't have to put on a mask. I have the righteousness of Christ. I can't lose a thing by admitting what I've done wrong. 
when we live as ambassadors of peace, there's no longer any need to look down on others. That, that stops. We're not looking at the outward anymore. I'm not comparing myself with others. Or they have more than I do, or they have less than I do, or I do more things right than them. You know, I've had to forgive them six times this month. They've only had to forgive me twice. We're always comparing. Look, if I have divine righteousness, what's all that matter? It's about what God has done for me in Christ, and from there we just live compelled by His love. One of the biggest factors for me to know whether I'm walking in the righteousness of Christ or whether I'm kind of drifting back into my own self-righteousness is how I respond when other people sin. If I'm self-righteous, then I am repulsed by people who sin. They do something and I, in conversation or in my own heart, I can't believe they would do that. Well, stay away from them. But if I'm living in the righteousness of Christ, as an ambassador of peace, knowing what Jesus did for me and my soul, it's not that we pretend that sin isn't a thing, but we're actually drawn to sinners Remember what the Pharisees were surprised about when Jesus came? <laughs> he spent time with sinners. Why? When, when they asked him. Because I haven't come to save the, those who think they're healthy. I've come to save the sick. And so if I'm walking in Christ's righteousness, I'm actually drawn to those who are struggling in sin, wanting to help them. Hey, I've been there. Jesus has given me peace because of his righteousness. Let's, let's walk with him. Let's, let's hate our sin and love the Savior together. We're not repulsed by people. We're repulsed by sin. See, we see everything differently when we find peace with God. We live our life as messengers of his peace as his reconciliation has employed us to do. And so I encourage you today, wherever you're at in the spectrum, either to find peace with God or if you have found that peace, to rest, take a deep breath. Because of Jesus, everything is right with you and God. And if you found that peace, to be compelled by God's work on your behalf to share that message with others. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you we marvel. I, I don't even know how to put it into words, the, the massive, massive price that you have paid on our behalf, reconciling the world to yourself in Jesus Christ, giving us hopeless people the opportunity for, for peace with you, washing away our sinfulness and filling us with the righteousness, the divine righteousness of Jesus Christ that we might be reconciled right with God. We marvel at this. Father, help us this Christmas season to be a people that are just grateful for the peace we have found with you in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then I pray for those who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, that even today they place their faith in Him, have their sins washed away, and have righteousness to be right with you. Compel us to be ambassadors of peace in this world filled with sin and sorrow. May we be a light in the darkness for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.